From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Adam Fletcher Sassy, author of the collected North Omaha History volumes available now on Amazon and host of the North Omaha History Podcast. The United States as a whole, and Omaha, Nebraska specifically, were founded on racist ideas. And if we don't learn about them, we're bound to repeat them. If we're not going to repeat them, the only way that we can get there is through learning about them. And that's what history is all about, is to teach us the error of our ways and show us how to become bigger, better, and more in the future. And I think that we can all agree that that's what we all want, is a bigger, better, brighter future for everybody, everywhere, all the time. We talk about the value of learning history, of a critical worldview, and how the history of Omaha shapes the city we live in today. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Adam Fletcher Sassy, who spent the last several years compiling and sharing North Omaha history in articles, a podcast, and a book collecting his volumes of history and articles and some new stuff that he talks about in his newest volume, appropriately called North Omaha History, which is also the name of his podcast. The book is available now on Amazon. In this conversation, just a quick note, we do talk about some of the ugly details of the Omaha race riot and some of the violent racist acts that have happened in Omaha's history. So if that's not something you're interested in hearing today, maybe skip this episode. Here is my conversation with Adam Fletcher Sassy. I want to start with uh, kind of a general context because your whole project of becoming kind of the historian of North Omaha is interesting. And especially in the context of right now where history as it pertains to race is getting increasingly politicized for a lot of lawmakers. I think 21 states as of the time we're recording today have proposed laws that would censor school curriculum's ability to teach what they vaguely describe as critical race theory. And, you know, though critical race theory began as a kind of legal framework and there isn't much evidence that it's actually being taught in primary, secondary schools, it's become this big sort of virtue signal in the culture war. And notably, I want to, I want to quote here, so Governor Pete Ricketts, when he was trying to describe what critical race theory is, he told the Omaha World Herald, quote, critical race theory, and I can't think of the author off the top of my head who wrote about this, is really a theory that at the high level is one that really starts creating those divisions between us about defining who we are based on race and that sort of thing, and not really about what brings us together as Americans. Which to me seems it's kind of like this nebulous concept that's open for lawmakers to define however they want in the name of teaching ideas that will make you patriotic because we're not going to acknowledge the negative, right? That seems like the kind of trend. So I guess in, in light of your project and that that whole, uh, I don't know, what do you want to call it, this, the whole the, the controversy, I guess, over what they're calling critical race theory, what, what do you make of this trend of how we talk about our history? Well, the first thing that I'll start out with, Tom, is that I started my project back in 2009. And at that time, the whole notion of any kind of consciousness in Omaha regarding race had simply to do with how the Omaha World Herald and other mainstream media sources painted out African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Latino folk, lots of different people of color as being less than white people. And it was a constant and regular trend. The news painted out people of color to be violent, to be apathetic, to be undereducated, to be ill-received by Omaha's majority white population. So that said, in 2009 and since then, there has been a bit of an evolution. Of course, the major uh, change came with the murder of George Floyd and the massive uprisings that happened. But that doesn't mean that race hasn't always been a factor in Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, we have stories of police brutality. My book, Hashtag Omaha Black History, covers police brutality in the city going back to the 1870s, focused on African-American people. So this has been a long story that's gone on for a long time. And just in the last year, uh, the Republicans have decided to make it a talking point and something to rally their troops around, as it were. What that's amounted to is attacking anything that isn't white history, anything that isn't the predominant narrative. So from my perspective as a historian, it's really about allowing for more than just white history to be not only taught in schools, but acknowledged in our society. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Omaha is a pluralistic city. There are multiple cultures existing simultaneously. But more importantly than that, the city has a racial history that goes back to its founding. 
And if we could start telling history from a true lens rather than just a lens that looks at white people in our history specifically, but rather a true lens that includes everybody everywhere all the time, then we'll get to a more important story, a more rounded story, and ultimately a more true story. And I'm not necessarily interested in critical race theory as much as I'm interested in the truth. As much as people want to fabricate, make up, and otherwise deny the truth, I'm not interested. So that's really what my project is focused on for all this time, Tom. Well, so I, I want to start with just kind of a broader question then. So like what, what overall is the value of learning history? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, and overall, it's, it's a massive thing to begin to understand. The very basis of history, the, the, the advantage, you know, there are so many adages and idioms that float behind it. One of them being, if we don't know our history, we're bound to repeat it. That alone, from that point, from that place of perspective, we can begin to understand how Omaha, Nebraska was founded before the Civil War as an extension of the race problems that existed in the United States in that era. If we continue to look, we can see how Nebraska was denied the opportunity be to become a state, to move from being a territory to becoming a state when we look through a racial lens because we understand that Nebraska was founded on a racist principle that slavery should exist. That was core to the state before, or that was core to the territory before it became a state. Then it continued, Tom, whether that was Reconstruction period, which ended in 1877 when Omaha had a segregated school, whether it was the lynching of George Smith that happened in 1890 uh, because he was an African-American man who supposedly attacked a white girl, whether it was the lynching of Will Brown that happened in 1919, whether it was redlining that really came into full force in 1919 and then was advocated for by the federal government in Omaha, Nebraska in 1936, whether it was the segregated schools that happened all the way into the 50s and 60s and the end of segregated schools supposedly by the federal government in the 1970s. If we don't learn about these things, we're bound to repeat them. The problem with repeating them is that they are racist. And there's no two ways to slice that, Tom. I mean, the reality is the United States as a whole and Omaha, Nebraska specifically, were founded on racist ideas. And if we don't learn about them, we're bound to repeat them. If we're not going to repeat them, the only way that we can get there is through learning about them. And that's what history is all about, is to teach us the error of our ways and show us how to become bigger, better, and more in the future. And I think that we can all agree that that's what we all want is a bigger, better, brighter future for everybody everywhere all the time. Not in some idealistic, hopeful, someday, somehow, some way, but in rather uh, in, in very practical, concrete, tangible ways. And history shows us can give us a pathway and, and help us make multiple pathways to get to that bigger, brighter and better future for everyone. The only way, though, is by acknowledging what's happened and then looking forward to what's coming rather than doing one or the other exclusively. So I think it's interesting you talk about the learning history helps you from repeating some of the same problems. And I was thinking about that today, actually, as I prepared for this interview, because I was, uh, you know, I was listening to some of your podcast and particularly thinking about Will Brown. And, you know, uh, I, I had this sort of event with uh, the Will Brown story, right? I'd kind of been aware of it. I'd been taught a little bit of the history, but uh, Bofield Barry wrote this great play about him called Red Summer that ran at the Blue Barn a couple of years ago. And it was one of those sort of worldview altering experiences. And then after the play, I'm driving home, you know, through downtown Omaha where all of these things happened. And it's just so difficult to unsee all that history once you sort of let it in. But so I, I, I thought there's kind of an eerie resonance with it because, in the light of what happened, especially with uh, the courthouse, and then you think about like the insurrection that happened earlier this year. I guess I'm, I'm seeing not I'm not necessarily seeing people in power learn from history, but maybe we could talk about that for a second. So, could you tell us a little bit of the history of Will Brown and the impact it had? To understand what happened with Will Brown in 1919, we have to actually take a longer arc. Again, we have to look at history and understand that Omaha was a pretty crazy place for a very long time. And I don't mean that in some kind of a, you know, wild west, everybody shooting guns and chasing down uh, Native Americans and all that jazz. I'm talking about in a practical, operational way every single day. There were et European ethnic immigrants all over the city. There were the Scandinavians, Bohemians, uh, Germans, English, you know, they all intermixed, they all interplayed, but they were also very segregated in their own neighborhoods. Omaha, we all know about Little Italy in south, you know, just south of downtown. 
But did you know that there was Little Italy just north of downtown? Did you know that the Scandinavians had an area called Little Stockholm? There was an area that was called Little Russia, Little Bohemia. We had, of course, South Omaha and all of its different packing plants. But North Omaha had a whole bunch of ethnic communities as well, including the Irish and others. So Omaha in around 1910 was just, it was alive with all of this diversity. But the craziness really comes in around the law. Politicians didn't have power over the people, as it were. Law enforcement did not have power over the people. They tried. Their Omaha had a police force, but it was disproportionately small for a very long time. That all started to change around 1917 when a mayor named Ed Smith was brought in to be a reformer. He was going to bring law into Omaha and really straighten the town out. Omaha was run by a political boss. His name was Tom Dennison. Tom Dennison, the gray wolf. This guy was notorious for having his thumb on top of almost every criminal element in the city. But he was called a political boss, not a criminal boss, because he was also in charge of the politics of Omaha. His guy was the mayor, a guy named Jim Dahlman. Uh, they called him Cow Cowboy Jim. Cowboy Jim wore a cowboy hat wherever he went. He worked out in Sydney and done a whole bunch of shenanigans. But uh, Dennison got Dahlman elected five times as the mayor. And in those five times, Dahlman let the city just go wild. There was prostitution all. And we're talking about downtown Omaha as we know it today. Between about Capitol and about, mm, we'll say Pacific. It was just a haven, not just for the you know, the old market or, you know, the warehouses, not just for that, but also for prostitution, for gambling, for opium dens, for all kinds of shenanigans. They were packed down there. There was an area called the Sporting District. It was also that uh, was backed by another little area called the Burt District. It was called the Burt District because the women who were there were considered to be used up because they all lived in the cribs that were in the alleyway, which were all prostitution, basically prostitution sheds where young girls would sell their bodies for money. Uh, and that was the kind of city that Omaha was. It's, it's suburban areas, it's residential areas, a little bit nicer at times. But in reality, 1907, uh, an area in South Omaha that was called Greek Town was burnt out by a bunch of rioters who were rioting against Greeks. And they were rioting against Greeks because of anti-Greek hate, because Greeks weren't seen as white people. But they were also rioting because of that ethnic tension. And it was so vibrant all around the city. So picture all of that happening. Then the World War comes. Americans are sent off to war to fight in Europe against the German hordes and all of this jazz. Well, these guys, these white guys who went over to Europe, there was a division of African-Americans from Omaha who went to Europe, but not as many as in World War II. Anyway, the white guys who went over, they came back and found their jobs were gone, their jobs in the packing plants, their jobs on the railroad, because those industries were desperate for workers to keep their operations going. They actually went to the South and encouraged African-Americans to move to Omaha to work in those industries, to be, quote, scabs and line breakers against the union and all of this. It had been happening for a couple dozen years before that, but during World War One, it really picked up. So... Men came back from World War I from fighting in Europe, and they came back to Omaha to find that the titans of industry, you know, all the big names that all the stuff around town is named after, whether that's Kuntz or Dietz or any of these other guys, these guys had given up their jobs. And uh, these African-Americans from the South had really taken over the labor. Well, this really upset the white soldiers. 1919, September 1919, all through the summer of 1919. You had soldiers streaming back from Europe and they would return to their cities. And there were hundreds, literally hundreds of race oriented uh, racial violence across the United States where white people were attacking black people. It happened in a lot of different ways, a lot of lynchings, a lot of street riots, a lot of beatings, a lot of murder. Uh, and they called it the Red Summer because so many black people were killed by white people that summer. The streets were running with red, filled with the blood of African-Americans. So Omaha thought it escaped it. The newspapers talked about it. The Omaha Bee and the Omaha World Herald both talked about how Omaha escaped the terror of the Red Summer. But then in September, it caught up. And when it caught up, Tom, it filled the streets with a venom that the city had never seen before. 1890, George Smith, the first African-American lynched in Omaha. 1919, the second one. The difference is the crowds doubled. 
20,000 people in September of 1919, 20,000 people gathered outside the Douglas County Courthouse, the building that you can see today, 20,000 white Omahans gathered outside. There were some reports of some black people mixed in the crowds, but they were vastly, vastly African-American. They were calling for the lynching of a man called Will Brown. Will Brown was a worker uh, who had been around the city uh, and uh, was some kind of a laborer who had uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis really bad. His hands were crinkled up. His back was bent. He was a visibly weak man all the time. Uh, one day the police came to his door and said, you are accused of raping this woman. Apparently, this woman, her name was Agnes Lobeck, and Agnes was walking down the street with a guy uh, when a black man jumped out and raped her, and the guy couldn't do anything because he was feeble. And Agnes Lobeck reported to the police that it was that guy, and it was Will Brown that she fingered. Will Brown was taken to the Douglas County Courthouse. He was taken to the jail on the top floor, and from that jail, this crowd of 20,000 people ended up attacking the courthouse and tom they went at it full force with torches and guns and smashed windows they rioted and looted downtown first to steal guns and to disarm the police they almost hung ed smith that mayor that i mentioned early on this guy was a reformer he got out on the steps and he said don't do this we're better than this as a city they threw a rope around his neck and they pulled him up off the ground he was cut down in the last minutes before he died ed smith was never the same but he got away which is more that we could say for Will Brown, because they lynched Will Brown. They hung his, they hung the rope over a streetcar line, and they hung him. They lynched him right there. Not before, of course, they chopped up his body. Not before they set him on fire. They shot him full of bullet holes. They dragged a human being around downtown Omaha from the back of a car. And by they, I mean white Omahans who look just like me. They lynched Will Brown that night in September of 1919. The city was on fire quite figuratively. But soon this mob turned from Will Brown's corpse, which they set on a funeral pyre and lit up. They sold pieces of the rope that they lynched him with. They sold pieces of his clothes, 10 cents, quarter a piece. White Omahans bought them and brought them and put them back in their houses. They might be in somebody's attic right now in their grandma's old stuff. But, uh, they, this mob turned north and they went to go to North Omaha to attack the black neighborhood. The black neighborhood at that point was north of Douglas Street. And uh, this mob got towards there. And at that point, the U.S. Army showed up. The mayor had called in the U.S. Army, not from uh, Fort Omaha, by the way, because those guys couldn't be relied because they were Omahans. He called in the army from Kansas City that rode on the railroad all night long to get into Omaha. And they got there and they formed a line around North Omaha, uh, around the black community specifically, from 16th to 24th along Cumming Street, from uh, coming up to Lake. They put Gatling guns at each of the major intersections, 16th and Cumming, 24th and Cumming, 24th and Lake, 16th and Lake. And they said to uh, African-Americans, if you stay within this boundaries, we'll keep you safe. If you go out, we can't guarantee your safety. So... That was the first redlining in Omaha, imposed by the U.S. Army to, quote, protect black people. And it never ended. It's still going on today. But that's current effects. That's kind of the premise. That's the background for what happened to Will Brown and what that night began to look like. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Adam Fletcher Sassy, historian of North Omaha and host of the North Omaha History Podcast, as well as his book of the same name, which is available now. Well, so I, uh, I talked to Mayor Gene Stothert recently and I talked to her about the legacy of redlining, and her response to me was approximately, well, redlining ended decades ago. It's really not an issue. We don't really have a divided city. This is not really something we need to be worried about today. It sounds like you're telling me that the legacy of the history is something that should be, uh, you know, if we're trying to understand the city, it's something that we should reckon with in some way or address in some way, right? So, I mean, how does that story that you just told me about Will Brown, both the, you know, the lead up to a mob that big, which clearly has implications for the culture of the city, and then what became the beginning of redlining in Omaha? I mean, what what sort of legs did that have for Omaha going forward into the contemporary time? That's a great question, Tom, and one that isn't often talked about. But let's just look at the reality of the situation. 
That was 1919. Today is 2021, 100 years later. 100 years later, if you look at a census map based on zip codes showing one, there's there's a project done by the University of Virginia that showed one dot per uh, resident according to the U.S. Census by race. And it shows a cluster of, not cluster of African-Americans in Omaha living east of 42nd Street, north of Dodge, period. That's it. That is where African-Americans in Omaha live. That alone is the legacy of redlining in Omaha. Not just legacy as in something dead, but as something that's still happening. That doesn't mean that blacks don't live in West Omaha. It just means that there's no concentration of African-Americans outside of North Omaha. By zip code as designated by the U.S. Census. When the mayor talks about there being no legacy, the mayor is being ignorant of the reality set in force in 1919. The United States Army told black people they needed to live within these lines. In 1936, the United States Homeowner Lending Corporation was one of the projects of FDR focused on the New Deal. It came into Omaha and said, uh, if you live inside of this area, we will not lend to you. That area was the exact same area that was highlighted by the U.S. Army as a safe zone. Also, that's when formal redlining as we know it today really came into effect. That area, by the way, is where African-Americans in Omaha still live to this day. Again, we're not talking about the anomalous African-American who happens to live at 142nd and Maple. We're talking about the concentration of blacks in Omaha is in one space. Black people in Omaha live in one area, and that is North Omaha, and that is the legacy of redlining. More so, though, Tom, the reality is that young people who live on 90th Street, young people who live on 120th, 160th, young people who live on Center, young people who live way down south towards the Bellevue line, young people even who live way northwest, they are less likely, and I'm saying young people under the age of 21, 25, 18, are far less likely to know, be friends with, like literal friends, I'm not just talking about in name only, with an African-American or multiple African-Americans than any young person who lives north of Dodge and east of 72nd. The legacy of race of redlining in Omaha also has to do with shopping. There is a food desert that exists north of Dodge east of 72nd. Oh yeah, it has to do with healthcare. There's a healthcare desert that exists north of Dodge, east of 72nd. We could keep going, Tom. The recreation, there is a, a, a complete absence of recreational activities to do north of Dodge, east of 72nd. Schools, oh, Omaha still has segregated schools. Clearly segregated. And do remember, Tom, we're not just talking about by the law. In, in in the law, they talk about de jure segregation and de facto segregation. De jure means segregation by the law. Law that says black people can only live here, white people can only live there. De facto segregation says everybody understands this is the way that it is. And that's how segregation mostly works in Omaha today. Everybody understands African-Americans don't live west of 90th Street, 72nd Street, that they don't live south of Dodge or Center. Everybody just understands that. It's it's just known to be this way. Think about shopping in West Omaha. Think about going to restaurants, going to movie theaters. You're not going to see a lot of African-Americans there either. That's because those economic opportunities to spend money, they're largely, it's understood. Black people don't shop here, eat here, go to the movies here. So that understanding itself is segregation, and that is part of the legacy of redlining as well. This goes on and on, and all of that began formally with Will Brown in 1919. So to connect some dots, I know I've talked to certain people who, when they hear some of the ideas that you're talking about, one of the, one of the questions that they have is just, well, why don't they just move out of North Omaha, or why don't they just move to a different part of town? So, I mean, for you then, how would, how would you answer that as far as the way the legacy still continues to be an issue, even if legally redlining is not you know, in the books? You know, I think it, it, I, I'll say this, Tom, as a white person, I can't answer that question as thoroughly, importantly or necessarily as an African-American person could, would or should. So if you really find, want to find out why, you got to ask black people from my from my perspective as a historian who looks exclusively at North Omaha's history. 
and understands the larger African-American history of the United States, as well as the pluralistic multicultural history of North America in general. What I've come to understand is that it's not just as simple as, well, why don't you just move to West Omaha? The fact of the matter is, if you had a commission in Omaha that was focused on women's rights, that was made up of all men, why would a woman join that? one woman when there were six men on that committee already. If you had a um, movie that was made about African-Americans by white people, why would anybody come and watch that? The point being that West Omaha wasn't made for African-Americans to live in. It was made for white people to live in. There is the reason why people of color generally don't live in West Omaha. White culture is the predominant culture in our country. It's a predominant culture in Omaha. And so when you look at the stores that are there, they are there for white people. When you look at the churches that are there, when you look at the restaurants that are there, when you look at the any place in, in west of 72nd, it's generally there for white people. There are Asian populations. There are you know a couple of folks living here and there, but the long story short is this is white culture. Why would a black person move there? But now that doesn't mean that they can't, some people would say. Well, from my perspective, but I'm a white guy. What do I know? What I know is that the world is made for me. So I go into a store and I'm not followed around everywhere I go because I'm a white male. I go to a church and I'm not kept an eye on the whole time or condescended to by a white preacher trying to preach like an African-American preacher. I go to a movie theater and I'm not disallowed from going into a movie because all the seats are sold out and on and on. These things happen regularly to African-Americans in West Omaha. Incidences of regular segregation are the norm, not the exception. On top, that's explicit segregation. Implicit segregation and subversive segregation is a lot harder to see, right? It doesn't jump out and slap people in the face. That doesn't mean it's not there. And these are the tones and attitudes and cultures that we develop without naming, without drawing them out. It's just understood. And that's how de facto segregation works in Omaha today. It's just understood that black people don't live in West Omaha. Not that they can, not that they shouldn't. It's just understood. And from that understanding, from that place, that's why black people, quote, don't just move to West Omaha, because it's just understood. And we have to look at all those as factors affecting the city and its racial um, and racist patterns. I mean, that's just the way that it is that culture and attitude are as pervasive as any structure that would prevent black people from going somewhere. They're as pervasive as any attitude or as, as any, uh, uh, you know, individual opinion. And so we look at these cultures and we can begin to see, oh, we have a Omaha that's made not for people of color. I'm talking with Adam Fletcher Sassy, historian of North Omaha and host of the North Omaha History Podcast, as well as his book of the same name, which is available now. Riverside Chats will be back after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstream's Communications Director, Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstream's Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstream's Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstream's and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstream's everywhere. 
Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. You can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Today I'm talking with Adam Fletcher Sassy, historian of North Omaha and host of the North Omaha History Podcast. And he has a new book out now on Amazon, which we will talk about in the rest of our conversation right here. There's not only uh, are things built culturally for certain types of people, but also certain types of culture or cultural hubs sometimes are destroyed in order to build infrastructure, uh, which can have its own sort of political agenda. So, I mean, how does that play into the development of Omaha, particularly in terms of roads? Well, that's a fascinating question, Tom, and really begins to hint at some of the possibilities um, for social justice in the future of the city let alone racial justice specifically. When we look at the history of roads in Omaha, it's actually one of the most intriguing things that I've covered. Um, I've done a couple different articles on NorthOmahaHistory.com that really get into specific roads in specific communities. And one of the biggest, of course, is Highway 75. But also, you know, we have roads as direct as Cumming Street or as 16th or as 24th or as 30th, uh, all the way up north to 480, all the way uh, around, including stores, including Sorensen. I mean, just all these different roadways. They have all these different racial tones and overtones and understandings. When we look at that development, we can begin to understand that all these roadways, ha- they were coded, they were signaled, and eventually they became explicit expressions of that segregation in Omaha. So starting in 1930, you know, the United States federal government began to look at how to uh build emergency housing for eastern europeans coming in from the german empire expanding and as that happened um they really built out the public housing projects that we knew were called the logan fontanel projects they were completed for occupation in 1939 right at 24th and paul streets however right away african-americans as we had mentioned uh who had come in for war work during World War I, they needed cheap places to live because they weren't able to gain full employment in the city because of employment racism. So they wanted to live in these public housing projects too. The federal government doubled the size of the Logan Fontenelle housing projects and had two sections, one section for Eastern European white people, one section for African-Americans. That section for African-Americans extended from 16th Street to about 21st and then the section for whites extended from 21st to 24th and so you had clear segregation within the public housing projects bounded by streets however that segregation north omaha had already swarmed on 24th street between coming and late and went uh, two blocks to the east and two blocks to the west So you had African-Americans already concentrated into this section, now moving into the public housing projects. All of this segregation was bounded by streets. So these streets became clear definitions where Black people lived. The population of African-Americans in Omaha continued to expand uh, into World War II and then immediately after World War II. And as African-Americans left the projects, as more African-Americans moved into Omaha, they moved further throughout the community. 30th Street became a clear boundary. 16th Street became another clear boundary. By the 1950s, it was understood Black people didn't live west of 30th Street. They didn't live south of Cumming. They didn't live north of Lake. Eventually, those streets expanded. But every time we look at this geographic expansion of where Black people live in Omaha, there are very clear street lines that designate where Black people live and where white people do not live. The most overt form of that, Tom, came in the 1950s when the very first conversations about the interstate coming to Omaha were happening. The interstate was designated to go through three different areas of Omaha. One was South Omaha, where we understand I-80 crosses today. One was downtown Omaha, where I-680, I'm sorry, I-480 crosses today. And the other one is far north, where I-680 is. When we look at those interstates, though, we can see that it's an incomplete map because spurring off of 
what we call the Kennedy Freeway now and I-480 is the North Freeway. The North Freeway was originally designated as an interstate. Uh, it was Interstate 580. And it had the designation also of being Highway 75. Highway 75, the North Freeway, was intentionally laid out in the heart of Omaha's African-American community. It took up from 27th Street to 28th Street, one whole block wide. But it demolished 1,000 houses, more than 200 businesses, dozens of churches, and a couple of schools from where it started at 480 to where it eventually connected to the store's freeway. In between that, a clear racial designation formed where Omaha's African-American community was dissected into half. And when it was cut into half, it weakened the community. It weakened their ability to be cohesive and to have one single identity and instead made it more obvious and reliant for white Omahans to be able to put a civic chokehold of benign neglect on Omaha's African-American community to, to quote, keep it in check. And from that place, we can really understand streets as weapons in this war of segregation. So you said you think this is the key to understanding how to undo or how to address some of these racial problems going forward? Exactly. So when we look at these highways, one of the things that we see is that what happened in Omaha with the North Freeway was actually part of a national pattern, Tom. Mm -hmm. It happened in cities all across the country. There are some beautiful reports that have come out in the last six months, last year, that really show how cities all across the country used interstates to dissect black communities over and over and over again with the same effect of weakening the community, weakening the social fabric, and really uh, disempowering black people from experiencing the political and social power needed in order to revitalize communities and make African-American uh, substantial political power in the country. So when these interstates, when these highways were laid down and this, these were formed, we can see how those were used as weapons. What's happening in communities around the country is that they are pulling up the interstates from where they were. They are pulling up these highways from where they were. Think about just the visual image. Drive north on the North Freeway from Cumming Street from, from 480 all the way up to stores, all the way up to Sorensen Parkway. And what you'll see on either side of you is a visual wall. These berms that were put in of dirt, uh, they were literally carved out of the ground and stacked up on either side of the interstate. Now think of the visual of the bridges crossing the interstate, of the grass covering each side. There are no trees. There are no flowers. This is urban wasteland implanted by the city of Omaha and the United States federal government with that intention of segregating the black community from itself. When those went in, that visual cue was black people don't belong together. That visual cue was white people can race through the African-American community without paying any attention to it. That visual cue was, this is okay. This works for everybody except for black people, but let's just let it work for everybody instead. What we need to do is pull up the moorings of these highways and turn them into walkable, usable transportation spaces that actually work for everybody instead of just the commuters racing in their cars to get through them. That's the beginning of the healing. There's a lot more to go from there, but that's the starting point. Well, so this kind of brings me back to a question I alluded to earlier, but maybe didn't ask you directly, which is, I know your whole project is so people understand history, they understand context, maybe they don't repeat the past. But one of the, I mean, I would think the audience that maybe is one of the most important to get that message are people who have some kind of tangible power, right? So, I mean, do, do people in power, are they, are they learning from history? Um, all indications, well, actually not all. Some indications show that there are people in power who are paying attention to North Omaha's history, who are paying attention to the history of African-Americans in Omaha, and ultimately they're paying attention to the history of race and racism in Omaha. Some. Now, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that Omaha has had an African-American member of the legislature for almost 100 years now. Uh, and that person is generally the um, uh, most visibly aware person. There have been African-American members of the city council. There have been African-Americans who are on the Douglas County Commission. You know, you have different uh, African-Americans in positions of influence and authority and political power who know about the history. And those folks, of course, stand up. But the important part is when white people begin to stand with them. And finally, we're hearing legislators, white legislators from Omaha and other parts of the state who are standing up for Black Lives Matters. 
finally we hear white people who are in positions of authority in churches standing up for and and standing up against racism standing up for african-american people finally we have white people who are beginning to move beyond performative things like showing up for the protest or carrying a picket sign when it's convenient and they're actually taking substantial steps of uh shopping at black owned businesses of attending uh, uh fundraising events for nonprofit organizations that support African Americans in Omaha. You know, you you have more of this work that goes beyond performative every single day. And I think all of those are lessons from history. That's what less what history has to show us. But ultimately, Tom, it's we're far from done. We're far from even begun. Because the fact of the matter is we need our public schools to rally around not critical race theory, but actual everybody's history. We need people in public schools to teach a reality of history and back to that truth that is more than just white history, more than just male history, but it's actually inclusive and shares everybody's narrative instead of just the one that fits the situation at hand. And really, that's our starting point. That's where we're at right now. Well, see, I think that that brings the whole thing sort of full circle because talking about what does it mean to get I don't know, kids, teenagers to have that in to understanding historical context or maybe inspiring them to both, I don't know, not, I mean, have some broad context from class, but then to investigate it further on their own. So, I mean, there's kind of this, you know, there's, there's this politicization of what should be going on in history classes. But then also, I know uh, this is uh, maybe not, uh, maybe an aside here that's not useful, but I noticed uh, Matt Brunig wrote a blog post recently that ca- that said, uh, who cares about history class? And he wrote that ultimately school curriculum's importance when it comes to history is overblown because, in his words, one, a lot of kids are fairly checked out at school and aren't absorbing much of anything. Two, others are checked in but only as grade seekers who ace tests but also don't absorb much of anything. Three, genuinely interested people can read about whatever history they want. And four, in practice, individual teachers are going to have a lot of discretion over what they decide to say or not in class, regardless of any curricular mandates. <laughs> what do you make of that argument? Honestly, Tom, I mean, not to be wholly dismissive, but that's a kind of cynical darkness that I won't even address. The fact of the matter is, for me, you know, going back 12, 13 years now when I started this project, I faced so much resistance from white people on Facebook I faced so much resistance from white people in the media. I faced so much resistance from other historians, from history buffs, from these people who just thought they knew it all. And they were so against anything that had to do with race, racism, anti-racism, white supremacy, understanding anything beyond the end of their nose. And Tom, these folks are always going to be around. The problem is, is that the darkness in their hearts and the cynicism in their words is shown in the way that they vote. It's shown in the way that they behave. And their overt racism, their overt discrimination is really, really, it, it, it doesn't look good on us as white people. It makes us look ignorant. It makes us look feeble. And frankly, it makes us look irrelevant to the future of this country. So if we really want to stand up, we got to move beyond words and hatred like what you just shared and get to the place of hope and potential that really moves us to a whole different space. Because frankly, that's where it's going. And if we if we aren't hopeful with it, we're going to drag it down. And that's where we see things like January 6th and the words and empty rhetoric of politicians who are filled with hate and disgust. And at the end of the day, cynicism, we got to get past that. There's only one way to. And that's where history comes in. And young people, by the way. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Adam Fletcher Sassy, North Omaha historian and host of the North Omaha History Podcast. Well, I mean, then I think as a teacher, then it, it kind of becomes this method of how do you make it engaging? How do you make kids care? Right. How do you make them want to sort of undergo this project, not just of understanding the lesson, but to understand the city or understand the country and what, what that means. Right. So, I mean, how, what does it mean to be an effective history teacher? How do you reach kids and how do you how do you get them to lock into your message? It's that's a great question, Tom. One of the things that I talk a lot with schools about, I I call meaningful student involvement. And it's this idea that we take education beyond seeing students as passive recipients, what adults deliver. And we start to engage students as active partners in learning, teaching and leadership. What that means in practical reality is embodied by a project that's actually done by the Omaha Public Schools. This project is called Making Invisible Histories Visible. And for more than a decade, this project has been engaging students as researchers, engaging students as reporters, engaging students as writers who are really developing, finding, 
and and making rich histories from communities of color, from low income communities, from different working class communities all around the city. And they've been doing it in really powerful ways. This summer, they're doing more powerful work. And I'm, I frankly, it's an amazing example that all schools in all of the Omaha region, all of Nebraska, all of the Midwest can follow. But it's definitely happening right now. And Omaha Public Schools is embodying it. And I say that as a person who works with schools across the United States. I've seen thousands of student-driven projects and making invisible histories visible is one of the most powerful, especially for history work, because they're really moving this narrative driven by students about the community to the front of the room. And when they do that, they are allowing students to move from being passive recipients of what adults teach to becoming active partners in this larger process of education. That's the country that we need. That's the conversation that we need to have. How did your history teachers do? Did they did they model some of this for you? Were they the ones lighting the fire that led you to have the career you'd ultimately have? You know, it's it's interesting because one of the things that I've been adamant about doing is acknowledging where my interests and passions and desires and where they come from. I grew up in, in North Omaha, 27th and Ellison. And when I was in elementary school, uh, one of my teachers, Jeff Koenig, uh, he sparked my interest in history by taking our class to River City Roundup events over at Fort Omaha. We got to wear cowboy boots and, you know, cowboy hats and sing old tiny songs. And that was super interesting for me as a fourth grader. You know, I was I was a young Canadian boy who was who had just come to North Omaha and felt completely awkward and out of place. And suddenly I felt like I fit. Now, that was way back in the 80s. By the time that I graduated from high school, I had one really good experience with a teacher at North. His name is Mark Schultz, and uh, Mark is a very powerful, great teacher. But I had some really bad experiences with teachers at North High School as well, teachers who were indifferent. I had mentors in the community who taught me about Malcolm X and where Malcolm X came into North Omaha's history. I shared that in class and was told to be quiet. That's not what we talk about. I had teachers in the neighborhood who told me about the local history. I shared that in class and was told to be quiet. I failed history class, Tom. That's not good looks on me, but that is what happened. So, no, I can't say that I had spectacular and wonderful role models all the time. I had a couple that really stood out, and those are the ones that I hang my inspiration on now. But, frankly, a lot of this is because of those community mentors who really made a difference. Folks like Von Trimble Sr., who was a mentor for me in Scouts, another man named Idu Maduli, who is a storyteller there in Omaha, who changed my life and changed the community in so many ways. These folks really shaped my mind, my heart, my passion. Reverend Helen Saunders was another. Uh, and, and they really made a major difference in my world. And that's really where my interest and passion in all of this comes today. Well, and so you've compiled, you've got your podcast that's about North Omaha history. You've got volumes of books out. So, I mean, do you feel like this is an ongoing project that has a lot more ground? Have you, have you covered it? I mean, what's, what's ahead for you? So... On NorthOmahaHistory.com, I have 500 articles, each one about a different person, place, or event from the community's history. Um, I've recorded more than 80 podcasts now. There are five books that are on Amazon.com, all related to North Omaha's history. So, so yes, Tom, a lot of that ground has been covered. But the fact of the matter for me is that I want to see schools teach this as part of the regular curriculum. Uh, the fact of the matter is for me that of the of the three volumes of North Omaha history that I've written that covers about a quarter of the articles, I want to get all those articles in. So there's a lot more work to do that way. I feel like I'm just on the tip of the iceberg, man. I've begun to see a little bit into the middle, but the fact of the matter is the majority of the stories are still under the waterline. But Tom, one of the things that I've come to understand is that the work isn't always for me to do. There are more people standing up for North Omaha's history than ever before. And that includes African-American history, but also the history of the old mansions that used to be throughout the community. The history of the old churches that were built to serve these suburban, leafy suburban white communities. You know, these old places and events and people that are still matter. Those stories are still there and they need to be told. But we have more projects than ever that are trying to cover that story, that are trying to tell things that haven't been told. So I'm working with people more than ever and really trying to raise the banner, not just for my own storytelling, but rather to get other people out there to get activated, involved, and to collect the stories, to share the stories, and to really uh, get that history to grow up in a powerful way. So it's just begun to some extent. Are there any upcoming projects that you want to plug while I have you here? 
you know, the most important one that I would love to share with anybody all the time, Tom, is uh, my latest book. It's hashtag Omaha Black History. It's on Amazon.com right now. It's just, it's 500 vignettes about people, places, and events from the history of African Americans in Omaha, Nebraska, going all the way back to 1804, coming all the way to 2000, and everything in between. It's very hopeful. There's a lot of positive history in it. There's also some challenges and some struggles in, woven throughout. But for it's the most complete collection of Black history in Omaha that's been published so far. There, there are other books. There are other people. But that's what I would really send people to right now. It's very exciting for me and has a lot of life. And it's going to grow a lot. I really see, have a vision for all of Omaha Public Schools high schools to be teaching from that book as well as other schools in the districts around the city as well. Because, frankly, it, this kind of history has never been told. And it needs to be shouted from rooftops over and over and over. I'm excited to share that. Why, why the hashtag? Uh, you know, <laughs> one of the biggest ways that I've been able to share my work is through social media. So if you go to Instagram or you go to Facebook or you go to Twitter and you type in hashtag Omaha Black History, you're automatically going to have access to hundreds of free resources, articles, interviews, photos, all kinds of things that I've put together over the last decade. Well, I wanted to I wanted to get them all in one place and into print. So I made this brand new set of stories. They're not published anywhere on the web. They're not published any in any of my other books. And they're all about all these people and all the rich things that they did. But the hint is they're all vignettes. They're just short little 25, 30, 50 words, 120 words. But they could all fit into a tweet. And everyone is just written in with that, frankly, with my attention span in mind. <laughs> but it's going to be quick. Get it. Got it. Go. And move on. And you can pick up the book, start in the middle, and get some really rich information. Close it, open it up later at a totally different page. Start all over and really get a different set of information that's just as exciting. So it's like social media in that way. I'm trying to appeal both to my interest as well as where I know people are coming from. Well, Adam, thank you so much for talking to me and for the work that you do. I feel like I've learned a lot here today, and I know that there's a lot that I can go to find in various formats that you're working on. So thank you very, very much for everything you're doing. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you having me on. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of my conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.